You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O. T-I-K-A.com. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. We gave you a chance to water the plants. We didn't mean that way. Now zip up your pants. I don't know that uh, <laughs> vocal exercise. <laughs> hey, everybody. Hey, hey, hey. So good to have you back on the show. So appreciate y'all listening to us when there are one trillion other podcasts you could be tuning into at this time. I also hope that if you haven't yet, you got a chance to listen to us over on Ridiculous History. Yeah. Talking about the history of Valentine's Day. Super fun. Yeah, we Uh, had a blast. Yeah. Yeah. Super weird stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Ben and all are awesome. I was laughing because a friend of mine posted that she preferred Lupercalia (laughs) to Valentine's Day. And I was like, you know, I should have mentioned that of course, as the only female present for our episode of Ridiculous History, I had said, no Lupercalia for me. <laughs> but there are some ladies out there who like sure. a little whipping, some and they might be real get, into that. <laughs> if you want to get whipped with a bloody goat hide, that um, can happen. my only ethical concern is for the goats. Uh, I would mm. I would encourage you to get whipped with maybe a wet towel or, or you know, a piece of faux leather soaked in corn syrup. You know, that's my Sticky. vegan solution <laughs> to the goat's blood. <laughs> that's an official tip, by the way, from yeah. your friendly neighborhood uh, stagehands. Yeah, true. We have yeah. made 
many, many, many buckets of fake blood. True. Out of red food coloring and corn syrup and a little water. Here's the real secret, and I learned this in the movies. Uh, to get fake blood stains out of your skin, use shaving cream. Get yourself a little can of Barbasol, mm-hmm. squirt it in your hands, rub it around, boom, fake blood is gone. Otherwise, that will stain your hands for days. That's so weird. What, what is it about amazing. shaving cream? Look, I'm not a chemist. Well, I'm a props assistant. Look it up. <laughs> I didn't have to look it up. It works. <laughs> it works great, you know? If you find yourself covered in fake blood, cover yourself in shaving cream. That <laughs> will look just trade it out. Great. <laughs> You'll look great no matter what. Uh-huh. Just someone dripping with corn syrup with a big, like, shaving cream beard on their face, looking insane. Uh, Eli told me to do it. Did you know that back in the day with black and white, they used chocolate syrup? I Yes. I was in a short film where uh, Michael Palma covered me in chocolate syrup after a simulated no car crash. Yeah. Well, anyway, if you didn't know, now you know. Now you know. <laughs> That's why you came here. And uh, speaking of tricks of the trade in the art world. Mm-hmm. We're going to get into a little bit of the art world today, aren't we? Yes. yes. I'm excited about this one. Yeah, this is a cool story uh, about <laughs> a world that I was not too familiar with beforehand. I mean, I've heard of these guys, but I didn't really know much about their work besides mm-hmm. looking at it and going, okay, I'm sure that's for someone. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know anything about them until like last year. Right. And then I looked him. I was like, what is the point of this? Like, I was really a hater. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then when I looked him up, I was like, actually, I really like this now. It really gave right. me a huge appreciation. And they have such an interesting story that they, they really were so do. worth doing. Yeah. And, and we really we wavered a little on whether not to do this episode because we weren't sure if these two were a ridiculous romance or just kind of an historical romance. But mm-hmm. if you have seen their art, you know, that's kind of ridiculous enough, I think. They've set up these bizarre structures across the world. They they wrapped monuments and even whole islands in brightly colored fabrics. And their abstract environmental art brings out admirers and critics alike. But where the art comes from and like what it's really all about kind of helped us understand and appreciate it way better. Mm-hmm. So I say let's take a look at where Christo and Jean-Claude came from and then the tangled web that led to them being together romantically. Yeah. And what about their lives makes their ridiculous art projects so dang interesting? I cannot wait to cover this one. Oh, hey. good one. Yes, let's go. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance. A production of iHeartRadio. Christo Vladimirov Yavachev was born on June 13th, 1935 in Gabrovo, Bulgaria. He was a middle child with two brothers on either side, and his father was a scientist who also ran a small textiles factory. And from an early age, Christo was super into art. He rarely spoke. In fact, it's said that he didn't even really start speaking at all until he was six years old. And before that, his older brother Anani would communicate for him. Their family wasn't super wealthy, but his parents got him private tutors and encouraged his natural talents. So young Christo just had like bright, shiny stars in his eyes, and he picked up a paintbrush. He's like, I'm going to be the next great thing. And then 
World War II happened. Oh, man. Always the damper on so many things. Ruined everything, really, that damn World War II. <laughs> and ding dang World War II <laughs> making trouble again. Somebody ought to put a stop to this World War II. <laughs> so Bulgaria in World War II was in a rough spot. They started out totally neutral, mm -hmm. then the Nazis got them, mm -hmm. and they were aligned with the Axis powers for a few years before Russia came in, kicked out the Nazis, and added Bulgaria to the Allies. So, yay, no more Nazis, everything's good, right? You think they woke up every day like, which side of the war are we on today? Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to wear the right outfit. <laughs> well, finally the war was over, no more Nazis, all was looking good. But after the war in 1946, I don't know if you know that uh, Eastern <laughs> Europe had some troubles. Yeah. And the Soviets marched back into Bulgaria, abolished their monarchy, and installed a communist regime in its place as the People's Republic of Bulgaria. So, yeah, it was just a lot of back and forth politics, like one person tossing out one oppressive regime for another. Like you said, who, whose side are we on today? Right. I don't know what's going on. Just a lot of bombing and badness and mm. not a lot of fun. Yeah. Upheaval. You can't yep. really make a stable life for yourself. Right. Sounds awful. Right. I honestly feel terrible for like all of those countries because you'd be like, oh, sweet. World War II. It's finally over. Fantastic. Oh, God, Everything's yeah. going to be fine now, right? <laughs> like, mean? Actually, it sucks for another like right. 80 years. So once Bulgaria became a Soviet satellite, Christo's father's property and factory were both nationalized, and that hit the family with kind of a downgrading in their class. And in 1948, when Christo was just 13 years old, a drunken factory worker overbleached 100,000 meters of fabric, which ruined it. Oops. Um, but it was his father who was arrested, convicted, and imprisoned for, quote, intentional destruction of Soviet production. Ooh. That doesn't seem very fair. Yeah. And, you know, some students teased him. You know, they were like, ha-ha, your daddy's a capitalist. He's an enemy to the people. Oh, you damn. suck, and so does he. <laughs> you know. Anyway, so he's dealing with a lot of ribbing, you know, in school for that stuff. But his friends saw him as this shy, imaginative kid. He invented creative games for them to play well into their teenage years. And in 1953, he was admitted to the Academy of Fine Arts in Sofia and thought, cool, all right, at least I can make some cool art now. But the communist government wanted to suppress all types of Western art, so he was pretty much stuck with realism. There was no interpretation, no meaning, no voice, just portraits, landscapes, very straightforward stuff. But Crystal was clever, and he would throw nuance into his paintings of peasants. Like, rather than showing field workers dutifully and triumphantly harvesting, he showed them peacefully relaxing and in conversation, just like chilling out in the fields. Mm. And his portrait of a nearly naked old peasant showed a man with calloused hands and feet, but he gave him the traditional features and postures of an aristocrat, suggesting that there's maybe no human difference between these two people, you know? What? No way! And time and again, these were rejected by academy professors, right? They took one look and they were like, Why you paint them like layabouts, sitting in the field and talking to each other? Like, you you make beautiful painting of strong, proud people working 19-hour days for stale bread, yes? <laughs> That's what I want to see. 
I also love that uh, little acts of sabotage in artwork. Um, like you see that with oh, like yeah, Michelangelo yeah. and stuff too and Da Vinci where they're just like, I'm just going to carefully put a little right. quiet rebellion in the, into <laughs> this. I hope my patrons are too dumb to notice yeah, and they I usually are. are. <laughs> <laughs> but communist Bulgaria didn't just want their paintings to look like landscapes. They wanted their landscapes to look like paintings. Mm. So Christo and other students were also assigned to a youth brigade as quote-unquote, volunteers. Yeah, you can guess how voluntary that was. <laughs> right. They were like, no, you must do it, but we won't pay you, so you're <laughs> volunteer. Volunteer. Thank you for volunteering. <laughs> they went out along the route of the Orient Express, which was the only railway connecting Western Europe to the east, and they just cleaned and worked those fields until they looked absolutely gorgeous. Right. And this was mainly because, of course, this was sort of the only view of communist Russia that a lot of Westerners would get right. out the windows of the Orient Express. So they were trying to make it look like everything was going great, yeah. very prosperous, you know, so that they could spread the great message of communism far right. and wide. Right. These little Potemkin villages, like yes. a, just a facade set up to make it look pretty when, in fact, yeah. it was not so good. Yeah. Behind the facade right. was a lot of poverty. Uh-huh. Christo said, quote, bales of hay and equipment were displayed on each side of the railroad tracks. Sometimes the items were wrapped in tarpaulin and tied up for protection. Christo and the other art students were also sent to paint Soviet propaganda on the weekends. Mm -hmm. So everything was just so rigid and controlled. Didn't have any sort of freedom in what he was going to paint or how he was going to make his art. Mm -hmm. So he just got over it. And in 1956, he used a connection at the academy to get permission from the government to go study in Prague, which was in the more progressively communist mm -hmm. Czechoslovakia, before he ended up bribing his way onto a rail car to sneak out to Vienna. He wrote back to his brother Anani saying, quote, I could not bear any more to be crushed and told what art is when those are lowly lies, absolute nonsense, cynicism. I embrace you warmly. Forgive me. I wish you success in faith and art. He worked commissions in Vienna to survive, studied there as much as he could, and eventually made his way to the city he always dreamed of seeing. Paris, France. Man, I dream of seeing Paris, France every night. <laughs> <laughs> and We've I've seen been. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the dreams are very realistic. Yes. So that's when he got into the Nouveau Realist movement. So Nouveau Realism was this art movement that started in France in the late 50s. Basically, these artists said that their medium was reality. They said art doesn't have to elevate or idealize any subject. It doesn't have to have any scholarly meaning behind it. They didn't need to create a sculpted face in marble or paint a subject into existence. They could actually use real things and make art out of those. Or as put by theartstory.org, quote, They took the ready-made object to become an active participant in the work of art in its simple, unadorned form. An accumulation of trash became a picture. A crushed car informed a sculpture. A block of color could dwell on a wall unapologetically itself. And I gotta say, as someone who uh, has long struggled with more modernist kind of art, mm -hmm. uh, this I, I found this description really interesting, especially that last bit. A block of color could dwell in the wall unapologetically itself. Yeah. And I really liked that because I'm, you know, I was definitely one of the first to be out there. Not one of the first, but <laughs> I was definitely <laughs> before I even heard it anywhere else. Definitely looked at some of these paintings and was like, I could do that when I was five years old. Right. You know, and that's sort of the common criticism of such uh, minimalist, simple shit like that. But mm -hmm. this idea of like 
it's just unapologetically itself. It's just it's just a what do you want me to do with it? Right. It's just a square of color. It there it is. Look at it. Move on. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not to mean anything. I feel you. I had always had, uh, especially, you know, when I first started getting interested in art in any way, I was like, this is not impressive. Like, what? Yeah. what is, why did you have to go to school to do this? You know what I mean? Uh-huh. But I think you're right. That's what's so fascinating about art appreciation is just like this story. Once you kind of find out the thought process behind something, it makes it a lot more interesting to look at. Right. Art is not just about the finished product. I, uh, growing up, we, we, we've talked about this, you and I a little bit, but I, growing up, was like so, rolled my eyes so hard at Jackson Pollock that mm-hmm. I would I would strain my eyeball muscles. <laughs> like, it was I'd so dumb. I'd have a headache dumb, for days. So ridiculous. Uh, so just like, yeah, I've done that by accident, you know? Mm-hmm. And then on my, on my study abroad, oh. quit your groaning, um, <laughs> On my study abroad. Everyone just turned off the podcast. <laughs> I was in, um, I think it was in Venice at the Guggenheim, and they had all this Jackson Pollock work up. And I walked in, and I walked right up close to one of his paintings, and just immediately, I, I could hear the switch in my brain click. Mm. And I was just like, holy shit, I get it. Yeah. Like, it was so frustrated and messy, and it, and I think someone there explained it as like Jackson Pollock is looking at the state of the world and all the art that's come before him, and he's like, "What? What else can I do? But just throw, just, just gonna throw paint at the canvas. I'm just throwing it. Mm-hmm. Like what? What else am I supposed to do? Yeah. How else am I gonna? Nobody's changed the world yet. Mm-hmm. It's still a crazy place. Yeah. So here, just take it. And I, I thought that was so fascinating. And I was yeah. like, okay, yeah, it's more than just splatters and squiggles. Mm-hmm. It's uh, uh, it's an act, you know, yeah. uh, with with meaning behind it. And this is the result of that act. But I, I kind of definitely had a more uh, a much wider appreciation after that. Yeah, I had this similar in theater um, yeah. because of Dada. Sure. Similar time period even. Yep. And yep. reaction to the war in yep. France was Dada theater, which was completely just gibberish like yep. they didn't have storylines they didn't have often didn't use real words they would right. just kind of totally jabber and make up nonsense noise and whatever and i was always like again it looks like a bunch of kids running around like banging on pots like i don't yeah. understand why this is important to know but yeah i had a teacher who was explaining like well this is really coming out of a reaction of a crazy world war that we can't even comprehend because it was fought literally in their in their town. Right. We don't have that experience in America. So we don't, you know, it's, you got to really put yourself there. They sat through that whole war and tore up towns and just everything, all the fallout of war. And then, and then it's just like, okay, now it's over. So business as usual. What? Uh-huh. Like the world, what? Like everything about the world is weird to me now. I, it just feels off and wrong. And what does any of this mean? Why are we here? Yeah. What is the point of anything? So, yeah, their reaction was just like, well, there are no words. I'm just going to stand here and scream. Yeah. That's my real feeling yeah. right now. And honestly, I get it after a pandemic. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, honestly, like for real. I'm a return to Dadaism. <laughs> are we just like, hey, uh, here's my new TikTok. It's just me going, blah, blah, bee, da, do, da, boo, da, do, da, boot. And people be like, this is deep. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> fascinating. Deep. The most the most introspective art of the 21st century. There are people who put events up now on Facebook, like, go, just go out at 5 p.m. and scream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is Dada. True. <laughs> that is True. Dada right there. So the founder of Nouveau Realism, Pierre Restani, called it, quote, a poetic recycling of urban, industrial, and advertising reality. 
And it wasn't any type of criticism on that reality necessarily. It was actually, in fact, trying to take apart this idea that artists are these lonely, scholarly people painting densely metaphorical subjects in their studio. Right? He wanted to get rid of that image. Mm -hmm. If anything, the criticism of new realism was against the art world itself. Mm. So a lot of these artists would get together and collaborate, and they even held live public art-making sessions where audiences would get invited to come in and participate. So it made me think, like, if you're walking around on the street, you know, sometimes they'll have these, like, community murals yeah. or something where you walk up and, and add your little painting to the wall, mm -hmm. something like that. If you if you stumble across one of those, here's what you do. You, you <laughs> lean back, you put your hand on your chin, and you go, hmm, how nouveau realiste. Ooh, that guy really knows what he's talking about. <laughs> or if you see like a bunch of kids like making a sidewalk chalk drawing together, you can be like, I love the nouveau realism, children. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Your depiction of a flower is so absurd <laughs> right. that it brings more meaning to flowers. <laughs> By saying nothing, you say so much. You say so much. <laughs> <laughs> or like if, if they're passing around an office birthday card, Perfect. you know, you could be like, well, I've always appreciated the Nouveau Realist movement. <laughs> wow, I didn't know Sharon was so interested in Nouveau Realism. <laughs> I guess I'll sign her card. <laughs> so, yeah, just, just a way for you to sound smart out there in the world, mm -hmm. you know, go wild with We're that. here for you. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> So Christo gets involved in nouveau realism. He's looking around mid-century Europe, and he's fascinated with packaging. He's like, everything is put into a box, and then another box, and then it's wrapped, and then put in a bag, and then you take it home, and you have to take it out of all that stuff. That is so true. <laughs> I have been <laughs> right. so frustrated by packaging sometimes. I'm just like, why is this in this also? And he said that traditional sculpture wasn't available to him. He could not afford materials like steel, wood, or clay. So instead, he took household items, like a paint can, for example. He would wrap them in canvas, tie it with string, and soak them in a lacquer and sand mixture, which made them stiff and structured. And put all together, the collection was called Inventory. He said, quote, it comes from when you move to a new house and place things in the corner or on shelves. It probably has to do with escaping, carrying things, bundles, or going home. Mm. Which I, you can see. Oh, yeah. Definitely his past coming to play I, in that. Yeah. I mean, he left with nothing. So, right. and, and, you know, I imagine at most he had like a little, a little wrapped up piece of cloth with some food Sounds in it or something. Like, yeah, like a go. bindle. That's it, yeah. It's hobo bindle yeah. out of Bulgaria. So I think it's so cool to kind of look at where this seemingly meaningless art is coming from, like kind of look at his transition from wrapping haystacks for the Soviets to wrapping paint cans for nobody, <laughs> right? Uh, but before he started wrapping things way bigger than paint cans, he was going to meet the love of his life, Jean-Claude de Guillabon, and we will get to know her right after this. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Bienvenue. Oh, very nice. Bienvenue le show. Oh, a little more culture. <laughs> <laughs> so Jean-Claude de Goyabon was born in Casablanca, where her French military father was stationed. On June 13th, 1935, the exact same day that Christo was born in Bulgaria. What? Uh, she would later say, quote, both of us at the same hour, but thank God to different mothers. <laughs> <laughs> That would be quite something for a mom to give birth in both France and Bulgaria at the exact same time. <laughs> now, there's far less information about her early life out there, but their family moved around quite a bit, being military. Uh, she had a bit more privilege than Christo ever had. She got most of her early schooling in France and Switzerland. And from a young age, she was bright and outgoing and a very highly social person. She was also extremely organized. After she received her degree in Latin and philosophy in Tunisia, she returned to Paris to live near her mother. And it was there in Paris that she'd go on to meet and marry a man named Philippe Planchon. Who the F is Philippe Planchon? Wait a second. <laughs> well, that actually brings us to this episode's side piece. Your place or mine? not really any information about Philippe Planchon, but he was Jean-Claude's older boyfriend in Paris. Her family thought he was the perfect match for her. But Jean-Claude's mother was commissioning a portrait of herself, so she needed a great painter. 
And Paris in 1958 was... Not a tough time to find a great painter. You kind of stumbled over him <laughs> yeah. every time you went outside. You throw a rock in a Paris street, <laughs> and you're going to land in a, on somebody's easel. <laughs> right. And they're going to be like, how nouveau realist. Yes, right. This uh, is brilliant. <laughs> More people throw rocks at my canvas. <laughs> so one day she's at her hairdresser's. She saw a work by the artist she wanted to paint her, and it was signed, Yavashef. Christo was broke as a joke in Paris. He was still developing his reputation with the new realists. So to pay his bills, he was using his classical training and talent to paint portraits. And his new realist works, he signed Christo. And his traditional works were signed Yavachev, his last name. Right, right. And I'll, I'll say, if you can look up some of his like early portraits and sketches and paintings, and the guy was very good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, beautiful portraits. So Jean-Claude's mother tracked down Christo, this guy Yavachev, uh-huh. and brought him back to her home to paint her portrait. And so he would come by every few days to work on this portrait, and eventually he started dating her daughter. Joyce? <laughs> Who the F is Joyce? What are what these stories coming? all over the place? <laughs> oh, apparently Joyce was Jean-Claude's half-sister. Oh. Jean-Claude herself took one look at Christo when he was there painting her mother, and she said, quote, Oh, mother's brought home another stray. Oh. <laughs> she actually thought that Christo was gay. And she said, quote, well, he's so skinny, he's got long, thin hands, and he paints. Classic gay stuff. Oh, sure. What (laughs) what else do you need to know? So gay. (laughs) Long, thin hands? Come on. (laughs) Fellas, is it gay to have long, thin hands? (laughs) But no, Christo and Joyce got together just as Jean-Claude and Philippe were planning their wedding. But then Jean-Claude and Christo started to get to know each other, and they were kind of getting along. He invited her up to his tiny little attic studio to see his sculptural work, the the wrapped items Mm -hmm. that he was way more proud of than his portraits. So he opened the door and allowed her a very brief glimpse before he threw the light switch and everything went pitch black. She said, quote, in that second, what I had seen was packages from floor to ceiling, all piled on top of each other. And I thought, my God. This guy is crazy. (laughs) But his plan there was to create this sort of immediate impression without giving her time to kind of stare at it and think of it for a while. Just real quick. Mm -hmm. Boom. Lights off. Okay, what did you think? Yeah, that's very interesting, too, because you would have a different impression of it in a split second than you would if you're standing there. Letting its weirdness yep. kind of take over the logical, you know, like your logical brain right. take over and be like, what's the point of this? Like instead of just having a fully emotional reaction. Yeah. To it. And I think we'll see that in Christo and, and Jean-Claude's work moving on is that the reaction to the work, the perception of the work is as important as the work itself. Mm-hmm. Like they're doing their art is meant to be seen. Yeah. You know, it's not meant to display their talents or anything like that. It's literally for the viewer. Yeah. And and for the time that it's up, right? Yeah, yeah. Because that, that's what's, it's a lot like performance yep. in that way, where it's like, it's not a, like a piece of theater is not done until someone is is watching it yep. and taking it in, yep. receiving it. And then it's gone. And then it's over. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, she, she did say, you know, wow, he's crazy. 
But she actually was impressed to some degree. Um, Art wasn't something she had spent a lot of time thinking about, but she appreciated the alternative perspective. So they started spending a little more time together, and before long, they were having a secret affair. So I guess actually this brings us to this episode's side piece. Uh, well, um, I guess so. Oh, it's Philippe the side piece. Philippe is the, well, Christo was the side piece for the sister, but Jean-Claude was the side piece for Philippe. Philippe. So there's a lot of side pieces going on here. There's many a side piece happening. (laughs) (laughs) But no, no, no. Despite their illicit affair, Jean-Claude was an engaged woman, and she had promised to marry the man her mother thought was the one for her. And so she and Philippe walked down the aisle and were married in 1959, even though at the time, Jean-Claude was pregnant with Christo's baby! Oh, no! What? Scandal! So French. <laughs> <laughs> and so pretty much right after their honeymoon, she divorced Philippe and married Christo in October of that same year. Wow. And I'm like, why did she bother marrying him? Well, I, I'll, I'll say that... From what I read, it's speculated that she was pregnant at the time. Oh. And if she was, she might not have known she was pregnant at the time. Oh, My well, question then I is see that if it's like, oh, now I've just found out I'm pregnant, yeah. I should probably marry the father well, of but my child. My question is, how did she know it was Christo unless she and Philippe were not and sleeping not. together? You know? So maybe things weren't so hot between those two. Right. And she that's why like, she was trying to get some artist action on the side. <laughs> this guy's good with his hands. She's like, his long, thin hands that I previously <laughs> thought were gay, but they're not. <laughs> Obviously, her mother was not happy about this. And she actually refused to speak to her for over two years. Jeez. Jean-Claude said, quote, They loved Christo like a son, but not as a son-in-law. So a few months later, their son was born and they named him Cyril. And Christo gave Jean-Claude a crash course in the history of art. The Guardian wrote that, quote, Up until then, Jean-Claude had thought the Louvre, with its superb wooden floors, was fit only for illegal roller skating sprees. By the way, (laughs) when is that happening and can I come? Uh, (laughs) Man, this is the kind of thing where I'm like, if, if... if we got in a last man on earth situation oh, and like if everybody God. just got raptured and there was no one left but me, mm-hmm. I'm getting my roller skates. Absolutely. I'm going to the Louvre and I'm skating, skating my ass around. Off. <laughs> that I'll break awesome. a window if I have to. What you going to do about it? <laughs> so uh, Paris, you should have a designated roller skating day once a month. Right. Just, just open put the some Louvre ropes up so we can't crash into yeah, the yeah, sculptures yeah, or whatever. It'll be fine. People are very c- careful on roller skates. I think people are very careful with art in general. They yeah. never really ever touch it. Yeah, there's no problem. Try Nothing to, to worry about. It, ever. It'll be fine. Tourists are very respectful, historically. <laughs> <laughs> so she's learning all about art. And from this point on, she got very interested in Christo's artwork and became an enthusiastic participant. Christo was struggling to learn French. I mean, he struggled with language all the time. Right. He was always way better at expressing himself through his art. And Jean-Claude became his voice outside of art. She took on the role that his older brother Anani had been for him when he was younger. Mm. And in return, he helped her break free from her more traditional upbringing, showing her all new ways to express herself. And he even picked out this bright, fiery red color for her hair, which she dyed and kept that way for the rest of her life. Ooh. Their first work together in Paris was in 1961. 
The Berlin Wall had been erected at this point, and as an artistic reaction to this, in addition to violence that was taking place during the Algerian War for Independence against France, Christo and Jean-Claude arranged 89 oil barrels on their side, stacked up between the walls of the narrow street Rue Visconti. It was called Le Rideau de Fer, or the Iron Curtain, and it obstructed most of the traffic of the Paris left bank. And Christo said of the work in 2018, quote, Coming from a communist country as a political refugee, I was eager to do my own Iron Curtain. They had applied for a permit for the work, but it was denied, and they were almost arrested. Jean-Claude allegedly talked the police down and convinced them that it was necessary to stay up for at least a few hours. So it stood for eight hours in total, as photographers, critics, and fellow artists came by to see the work and meet the couple behind it. Mm. Which is pretty cool. I feel like she's probably like, okay, police. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, no. Let me know what she was like. Okay, police, you may come and take down all of the oil barrels as you will. Lots of hot, sweaty work for you today. Or you can leave it up for a little while and we will break it down. Up to you, up to you. (laughs) Appealing to their laziness. Yes, exactly. She's like, I have seen you at work and I know you like to see (laughs) And of course, some marveled at its brilliance. Some were furious at how disruptive it was, and they failed to see the point. And this type of environmental work and the public's reaction to it would prove to be a constant throughout their lives. And Christo continued his fascination with wrapping objects, too. But it was Jean-Claude who encouraged him to go bigger than just paint cans and household objects. Mm. I mean, tables, chairs, whole cars, bigger, bigger, bigger. Together, they even decided that one day they would wrap the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. Mm. And after the attention they got from their Iron Curtain work, they were able to start actually going bigger. Together, they would imagine these projects and conceptualize it, come up with the ideas. And then Christo, having the more like tangible artistic talent, would sketch them out and make little models. And he would sell those for the money he needed to create the work itself. They would then acquire found objects and hire assistants to help do the wrapping. And suddenly, Christo was, I I think it seems unknowingly, recreating his youth in Bulgaria. And there's Mm. dozens of people all coming together to wrap these objects in tarps. The difference here, I think, is maybe what his art was all about. These people, first of all, were getting paid. They were always very insistent on paying everyone that worked with them. Right. And beyond that, they weren't doing it to create some sort of deception, like mm-hmm. those wrapped haystacks were, trying to show everyone how beautiful communist Bulgaria was. Yeah. They were doing it for basically no reason at all. In fact, Christo referred to his own work proudly as, quote, irrational, irresponsible, Useless. <laughs> Love it. If only more artists admit it. <laughs> so together, they agreed that they would credit their work simply under the name Christo. Mm. Partly to avoid confusing dealers and the public, but also because the art world was, surprise, surprise, super shitty and sexist. Mm. But that decision would change in the future. And as their reputation grew, so did the scale of their projects. And we'll get into the irrational, irresponsible, useless, and ridiculous creations (laughs) they brought to the world right after this. Yes. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast 
is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Welcome back to the show, my artsy-fartsy friends. Mmm, farts. <laughs> Christo and Jean-Claude were almost inseparable. Yeah. Jean-Claude said they did everything together except three things. Quote, we never fly on the same airplane. I do not draw. And I have always deprived him of the joy of working with our accountant. <laughs> <laughs> what a great way to I say that. I wish someone would deprive me of a joy. <laughs> uh, or I guess give me an accountant first. I know, I and then deprive say, me of the joy of working with them. <laughs> if we had an accountant, I would gladly deprive you of the joy of working with them. <laughs> the only thing they cared more about than each other was the art that they created together. So they always flew on separate flights so that if one plane crashed, the other could continue to work on their projects, which is a little dark, I have to say. Were planes crashing a lot in the I 60s? Mean, I don't think that was necessarily a thing. I think it was just that sort of 
you know, kind of unfounded belief that planes are likely to crash. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have it too. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a, sure. a crazy idea. And it doesn't statistically line up with anything. Like, they shouldn't have ever been in the same car together. They shouldn't have, you know, right. if this was really what they were worried about. They shouldn't have done a lot of things together that they probably did. But, yeah. you know, people get in their heads about planes. Sure. Well, and I'm sure flying commercially was pretty new at this point. Yeah, maybe. I would guess so. So yeah, maybe it's yeah. just like, a, I don't know what's <laughs> right, going to happen right. with that thing. But in 1964, they and their son moved from Paris to New York City. They took a boat. Again, I guess they weren't worried about the boat sinking. (laughs) (laughs) And they got to New York and they just loved it immediately. Jean-Claude said, quote, As we were standing on the prow of the SS France, there it was in front of us. And Christo took me in his arms and he said, Do you like it? I love it. I'll give it to you. It's all yours. I love it. They, They... just love each other so much. I know. It's it's beautiful. It's so great when two weirdos, Ugh. like, understand each other like no one else does because that kind of love is – I feel like I think we've got a little bit of that. Sure, yeah. Where it's like it's just – at the end of the day, nobody gets me but you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's – they had this. It was so cool. Yeah. They settled in and they got right to work. They created a series called storefronts, which were these like wooden facades that kind of resembled shop windows. And they would wrap all kinds of things. They wrapped huge inflated research balloons. And in 1969, the director of the Chicago Museum of Contemporary Art invited them to come to Chicago and wrap the whole damn building. Ooh, that's cool. He wanted them to do it while the museum was open to the public. This was a pretty drab, boring-looking building that Christo said was actually, quote, perfect because it looks like a package already, (laughs) and its facade is a fake wall covering the original structure. That makes me think of, like, him, you know, it's wrapped in a box, it's put in a bag, you know. So he's like, I'm putting the box, the box has got a box, and now I'm putting it in the bag. Yeah, Yeah, kind of like that. that. Yeah, cute. Um, And you should look up pictures of these because I don't know if... We're describing it well when it when we say wrapped. I mean, it was tightly wrapped in fabric. Yeah. The whole building. Yeah. It really looks like a giant Christmas present or something. Right, like, right. It's literally fully wrapped. You can't see any of the building. Uh-huh. I mean, except you can still get in it. Of course, right, you can see right. the door, but you can't see any of the, the building itself anymore. It's yeah. just the fabric. It's very cool. ChristoJeanClaude.net says, quote, The finished package had a stateliness and sobriety that considerably enhanced the building. The museum was tightly swathed in heavy tarpaulins, as if bundled against the city's blustery winds and snow. I bet it was like, thank you, God, it's <laughs> freezing here. <laughs> freezing my cornices off. <laughs> I'm freezing my freeze off out here. There we go. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> Eventually, of course, it came down. But all of Christo and Jean-Claude's work was meant to be temporary. Jean-Claude likened their work to a rainbow, more beautiful and exciting because of its temporary nature, calling out, quote, the quality of love and tenderness that we human beings have for what does not last. So true. I think that's gorgeous. It kind of makes me think a lot, too, of those um, sand paintings sort of that Buddhist monks will do or that people will go out on the beach and do these really intricate designs on the beach and the whole point is when it's over the buddhist monks sweep all the sand away right and after days and days of work it's it's gone and like the or the tide comes in and takes the 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 design away from the sand and you're kind of watching like why would you put all that work into something that's just going to disappear and it's just a great metaphor for life (laughs) (laughs) and the temporary nature of existence and yeah I i mean i love permanence 
And I, 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 I'm a, you know, bit of a a sentimental hoarder. Like I hang on to things that matter to me and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm glad that there's still these ancient works of art that are still around. I think that's so necessary and amazing, Mm -hmm. but I really do like this reminder that everything is temporary yeah, to some yeah. to, to one degree or another and that we're only here for a very brief period of time. Right. And I think it does add this little level of appreciation to it because like I've been fortunate enough to go to the Louvre and see the Mona Lisa, mm-hmm. you know, and I I know it's there still like I it's not like, oh, man, I got to see it. In the only moment it existed. Yeah. And that's insane to me. I'm like, I always, it's, I can always go back. I mean, yeah. I can't always just go back, but <laughs> it'll be there probably forever, yeah. at least forever to me. When I'm roller skating yeah. as the last man on earth, <laughs> I'll go look at it all I want. Exactly. Um, so there is something, I think, extra special about, holy crap, I just caught this mm-hmm. in this very brief moment. It is like seeing a rainbow yeah. or something. Um that's so cool to me. Mm-hmm. It's basically the only real non-fungible token. <laughs> <laughs> so they closed out the 1960s with a piece called Wrapped Coast, where Christo and Jean-Claude with 100 workers wrapped the entire coast of Sydney's Little Bay, a cliff-lined South Pacific shore about one and a half miles long and 150 to 800 feet wide and 85 feet high. Jeez. They used one million square feet of erosion control fabric, and every worker and climber was paid with the exception of 11 architecture students who refused to accept any payment. But I do love that, too, that they made such a point of paying everyone because art is worth money and so is time. And it takes both of those things. And anyway, that's my soapbox. I'm done. Well, and they continued this financial method throughout their careers. There were no sponsors. There were no patrons. There was no state funding. They simply sold all of their preparatory works sketches, models, whatever they made to kind of prepare the work was sold off at galleries and auctions. And they raised millions of dollars over the years that they would spend on these projects. And like like you said, often pay to other people. It's like a Kickstarter. Yeah, it's like the original original (laughs) Kickstarter in a lot of ways. Like you get this sketch if you pay me to do the final thing. Mm -hmm. And they were they were so insistent often that like we're not making any money off of this. It's all going into the project. Like they were their own little private, you know, Nonprofit, but they weren't really a nonprofit. They mm-hmm. just they just funded themselves. That that's amazing to be doing incredible citywide works of art for millions and millions of dollars and not take any funding, uh, not take any donors. Nobody nobody owned any of their art. Yeah, I mean it's like mind blowing. I know. I mean, and plus <laughs> I'm sure it mattered a lot to him particularly to be like, I don't want anyone to have any say exactly. over it and exactly. what we do and when we do it and yep. how we do it. I'm uh, going to do it my way and Jean Claude's way. Period. Right. I'm laughing because I'm thinking of the French artists that we met here in Atlanta. Yes. That came to work on maybe a project with us, and I can't remember if we've talked about this before, but they were so baffled at the notion of fundraising. Oh, my God. They were like, Wait, the, the government will not give you the money for this art project that the city wants. And we were like, <laughs> oh, oh. Oh, you're not joking. Oh. <laughs> I thought you were kidding. He said, he said, what is fundraising? 
I was like, well, step into my 101 classroom, I guess. an experienced middle-aged artist from France who had done huge, huge elaborate works of art yes. throughout the streets of many international cities. They closed down miles and miles <laughs> of like main roads in Paris and did these really dope like moving sculpture installation <laughs> performance things. And the man did not know what fundraising was. was he didn't have pissed. to know. <laughs> Can it was I just very tell frustrating. You how angry I was. <laughs> like the picture Hades from the Disney movie Hercules with the flames yeah, uh, of his head. That was head. you. That was you. I that remember. That was me. Flames on the sides of my face. <laughs> and the other thing about Christo and Jean-Claude's work is they took years, sometimes decades, to go from concept to reality. In the 1970s, they created works like Valley Curtain, which was this enormous orange curtain that was hung between two mountains over Colorado State Highway 325. <laughs> it looks super crazy and cool. It would have been nuts to drive under that. Mm-hmm. And then in 1973, after more than 17 years as a stateless person, Christo became a U.S. citizen. For someone who struggled so much with language and was so much more comfortable with artistic expression, New York City was the home he'd always dreamed of. He said it was, quote, the only city in the world where you can speak any broken language and everything is going to be okay. He said, unlike Paris, nobody in New York made comments if you didn't speak the language well. And in 1984, Jean-Claude got her U.S. citizenship as well. I think it's interesting you point out that he was 17 years stateless. Yes. Um, It's almost, it's just throwing me back to when he started wrapping things and Uh putting them in corners and he was talking about moving into a house. Yeah, yeah. Like, I wonder if he was also not only thinking about how he left Bulgaria, but also kind of wishing for, like, a permanence. Yeah. Like, I'm moving into a spot and I live here. Like, a settled feeling. Yeah, there's a lot in his early life about how difficult it was for him to settle anywhere or Mm -hmm. feel at home anywhere. Mm -hmm. But he never, he never talked about Bulgaria. He had such a difficult time there and he resented you know what they did to his father so much and everything that mm-hmm. uh he he totally renounced his citizenship and didn't claim that as a home at all so he he literally had no nationality it's crazy yeah art critic david bourdon called their work quote revelation through concealment hmm. so wrapping these objects concealed their details and revealed their raw true form Christo and Jean-Claude often claimed that the sole purpose of their work was to bring beauty and joy to the world. They were also very in tune with their audience, which was unique in the world of famous artists. They thought public interaction was a huge part of what their art was all about. Like we said, receiving the art was part of the whole process. So they often guest lectured at universities and museums across the world, diving into deep conversation with the public about what their work meant and how it was perceived. And Christo said in an interview with Serpentine Galleries, quote, I enjoy the things that I do so much. Fortunately, what I am doing is not a traditional studio practice. Probably this is the secret. We see so many people outside of the art world, from Japanese rice farmers, parliamentarians and engineers, to all kinds of bureaucrats. We are deeply involved with society, real society and community, not an illustration of society. It's very enchanting. I love this so much. Like, they've got such a bright attitude about the world. And it is such a contrast to the typical image of an artist. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that some of these articles mention is, like, traditionally, these, uh, you know, famous, well-known erudite artists, like the ones that are really, like, changing the world, are very resistant to 
interact with their audiences mm -hmm. or to try and they th it's too much work to try and understand them. Mm -hmm. So they just sort of built, put a wall up. Yeah. And these guys were the total opposite. They were they loved it. They were having so much fun mm -hmm. doing what they were doing and doing it together that um, they just had this whole bright, cheerful attitude. And, and it really brings a lot of I think it, it injects a lot of joy into looking at their work, too. Yeah. But I also I wanted to say you had mentioned the revelation through concealment thing being such a big part of it because right. you were by wrapping the building. You noticed it. Period. Like just because it's something you drove by every day. So you just kind of stopped seeing it. And yeah. then now you were seeing it in a totally new way. And it just made you realize, oh, yeah, that building's there. Yeah, exactly. We talked about this and we have mentioned, I think, many times on this show, our, our honeymoon, because mm -hmm. it was such a transformative experience for us being being in Europe. And I recall the same thing from my study abroad. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I just strained um, my eyeballs. <laughs> uh, where... You know, we were in Tuscany, and you walk outside, and you're like, holy shit, what am I looking at? How does this exist? And every time you see it, your brain explodes, and your eyeballs melt, and you're like, this is unbelievable. And I was like, but surely, if you're born there, if you live there all the time, you grow up there, I I'm sure you recognize that it's beautiful, mm -hmm. but it doesn't blow your mind constantly. You kind It kind of blends in. You probably kind of forget about it a little bit. It's just your normal world. Mm -hmm. So somebody comes along, takes a big shiny silver piece of fabric and like if uh, it covers the hills of Tuscany right. and there now there's this shining silvery glow, you're going to be like, whoa. Yeah. Well, I've, I, you know what? I, I I never even look at these hills, but now I am, and I, I'm totally appreciating them in a different way. Yeah, totally. I think there's something to that. Mm -hmm. Now, Jean-Claude conceived of the idea for surrounded islands, and these were 11 islands off the coast of Miami that they surrounded by six and a half million square feet of floating pink fabric. This was the first crystal thing I ever saw in an art book. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, this was a concept that she developed in 1980, and they were able to finally do it in 1983. And it remained there for two weeks. And if you haven't seen it, it is you, you can find pictures of it everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, it's really bizarre. It really just they took these little islands and just like that, they're surrounded with pink fabrics. They kind of look like lily pads a little bit. Yeah. Um, but just the trees poking up in the middle and then this giant circle of bright, bright pink. Totally. Jean-Claude said in a 60 Minutes interview, quote, one woman came up to me and was very angry and said, I saw it on television. It's very ugly. It looks like a giant spill of Pepto-Bismol. Not even an hour later, an elderly gentleman approached me and said, bless you. I have never seen anything more beautiful in my life. It looks like a giant spill of Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it, folks. Art, <laughs> beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that just says it all, doesn't it? Yeah. And they, they are, they're laughing their asses off about that sure. because they're like, exactly. Yeah. You know? I mean, and that's part of art, too, that's so interesting is like two people are seeing the exact same thing. Uh-huh. And they even are seeing, literally, they, they're comparing it to the same thing. Right. And they find it beautiful and horrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what I love about 
Christo and Jean-Claude is they're laughing about these reactions and they're not saying, well, you don't understand or, well, then it's not for you. Go away or anything like that. They're like, cool. Yeah. I love that you hated it as much as I love that you loved it. Like, you know, they want joy. They want people to find appreciation in their work. They're doing it to bring people, you know, uh, some sort of excited feeling. Mm -hmm. So I don't think they're like excited about someone hating it, but they're also just like, that's what it is. It's just here. Yeah. I'm not saying anything. I'm just showing it to you. Think what you want. Yeah. I'm not trying to give you an opinion of something. Right. Your opinion is valid, whatever it is. Right. And of course, again, coming from such a repressed background, that's probably got a huge lot to do with it, too. It'd be like, I'm not supposed to be telling you how to feel about this. Exactly. But the problem with Surrounded Islands was that to get the permits, they had to do the entire thing under Christo's name. Now, often Jean-Claude was the one out there negotiating and Mm -hmm. pushing and talking with the you know, bureaucrats and the environmentalists and everything. But they couldn't mention at all that Jean-Claude was involved or or the brainchild behind this piece. After the project was in place, then Christo publicly insisted that this was all Jean-Claude's concept. Mm. But they knew that if they led with that, they just flat out wouldn't have gotten the permits because of sexism. Because they were like, well, this if it's a man's idea, it's a brilliant work of art. Mm-hmm. If it's a woman's idea, it's crazy, you know. <laughs> Why aren't you at home making me a sandwich? <laughs> right. Why don't you wrap a sandwich in pink plastic and put that in my lunch bag? <laughs> then bring it to me. <laughs> I'll tell you my opinion of it right away. Oh, no. But that all changed in 1994. They were doing a Q&A during an art college lecture when a man asked about Cyril, their son. And he was like, how does Christo's art affect your son, Cyril? Right. How is he being raised? Da-da-da, on and on. But nowhere in the question did he ever mention Jean-Claude. And they had been discussing how to credit Jean-Claude more for some time now, but this was like the final straw. Right. And they announced then that not only their work's moving forward, but in fact, all their work retroactively They had done it together, so it needed to be credited as Christo and Jean-Claude. Right. Because while Christo was the one who sketched and designed their works, Jean-Claude was half of the pair that developed their concepts. And plus, she pretty much single-handedly negotiated with those government agencies, with the environmentalists, with the press when it came to getting their work approved. Um, Because, again, she's a very organized person. So she's like, this is what I can be doing while you're sketching. I can't sketch for shit. And as Kristen Capps writes on Prospect.org, quote, If Jean-Claude's portion of their work was in large part managing and bringing about the wrapping of the Pont Neuf Bridge in gold fabric despite the mayor's protestations, the process is the work. Jean-Claude's battle for recognition has helped shed light on the art world's discomfort with recognizing both women— and the process behind creating large-scale work. Right. And I love that so much because, yeah, it's so easy to be like, well, anyway, you got a permit, but this guy wrapped a thing. Yeah. And it's like, well, you couldn't have wrapped it without the permit. That right. You need all that stuff. That right. All of that is part of it. Right. Or I should say part of the work of art. Exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. literally the, the work of art. Yeah, exactly. In 1995, they wrapped the Berlin Reichstag building. And they took a million square feet of silver fabric and fastened it with blue rope. It's really quite beautiful. Uh, I, you can look up pictures and as strange as it seems and as tough as it can be to justify without knowing any of the history behind it, it's really cool. <laughs> it's just kind of a cool looking thing. The wrapping was sort of a symbol of Germany being united and Berlin becoming 
one of the world's great cities again. So it's literally almost like a gift wrapped oh, thing cute. where they're like, okay, and now I'm opening it up mm-hmm. and ta-da, here's Berlin. Yeah. Welcome back. All that old shit's over. Uh-huh. And you might be familiar with their 2005 project, The Gates, in New York's Central Park. The official title is The Gates, Central Park, New York, 1979 to 2005, in reference to the year they actually proposed the project until they were finally able to do it. Jeez. So that's a long-ass time. (laughs) That's, what, 25, 26 years. That's crazy. So this was 7,503 gates. 16 feet high and 11 feet wide, made from steel and draped in saffron fabric from Germany. And they were positioned along 23 miles of paths throughout Central Park. Christo and Jean-Claude hired and trained 100 workers to reply to any questions that passersby had as they walked through the gates. I think that's so cool. I think that's like uh, goes back to them really caring about their audience again, too. Yeah, totally, yeah. You know, they were like, we want people to engage with us, and we're not going to be able to answer everyone's questions. Mm -hmm. So they paid 100 people to learn, you know, to hear what they had to say about it, and then to go out into the park and just like, hey, you know, anybody got any questions? Like, what a job. I would take that job. So, uh, what's the big idea? (laughs) Well... (laughs) In 1935, in Bulgaria... (laughs) Jean-Claude. Christo Javafrin. And they funded the work themselves, thought to cost between $5 and $10 million. And the combined amount of steel used for the project was as much as two-thirds of the Eiffel Tower. They didn't want to disrupt the park at all, so they constructed heavy pillars with metal bases so they wouldn't have to dig holes. And I love that, too. It's sort of like them wrapping the coast of Sydney yeah. with erosion fabric. They were yeah. very, like, careful with the environment they were doing. Definitely. In. And the New York Times called it a stunning success, writing, quote, In the winter light, the bright fabric seemed to warm the fields, flickering like a flame against the barren trees. It was clear that the gates is a work of pure joy, a vast, populist spectacle of goodwill and simple eloquence. The first great public art event of the 21st century. It's pretty cool. But in 2003, uh, before the project was built, but after it had been approved by the mayor, Bloomberg, uh, Charlie Finch, an author and critic for Artnet magazine, wrote a condemnation of the piece and said, quote, In case you don't know who Jean-Claude is, she's, in our opinion, the vulgar, opportunistic wife of overrated, pussy-whipped artist Christo. Yeah. Why is this guy writing anything? Oh, my God. I hate him. This guy sucks. (laughs) That's not a good criticism, though. No. (laughs) It's it's just like, this guy loves his wife. Is it gay to love your wife? (laughs) (laughs) That's so weird. But, as Kristen Capps writes... Quote, Charlie Finch's vile attitude registered the more polite and broadly held opinion that Jean-Claude played second fiddle to Christo. (laughs) When New York Times first reviewed the gates, they dropped Jean-Claude's name altogether, according to Kristen Capps. And Christo blasted the New York Times in a press conference and called on them to recognize Jean-Claude. And subsequently, the Times was very careful to include both artists' names in every mention. Their critic, Michael Kimmelman, said on 60 Minutes in 2005, quote, his projects are a whole enterprise. And therefore, if she's involved in much of that, then I think he quite rightly sees her as a genuine collaborator. She is essential to it. Yeah. Okay. 
this is giving me Marsha Lucas vibes a lot, oh too, God, because yeah. she was always like, well, if I don't cut any movies besides George's, they're all going to think, well, George lets his wife play around in the editing right. room instead right. of like, I have a talent of my own and yeah, a exactly. of my own that I'm actually contributing to this whole project. Well, and it's still even separated them to say things like um, like Mayor Bloomberg said uh, at the time. Jean-Claude is essential to his work. Or she, he said, she, it would never happen without her. Mm-hmm. And Kristen Capps wrote like, yeah, that's cool, except you wouldn't say uh, Simon and Garfunkel wouldn't be the same without Simon. Like, that's an obvious given. Mm-hmm. Like, they are a pair. Mm-hmm. They do their work together. So it's kind of silly to make a point that like, there's Christo and he wouldn't be able to do it without his wife, Jean-Claude. Like, right. they are one thing. Yeah. Still kind of denigrating her. Yeah. Her. Still making her like a bonus. Yeah. Yeah. Her contribution. Totally. Right. Christo said of his work, quote, it's all about freedom. Nobody can buy this project. Nobody owns it. Nobody can charge tickets. They're here for a few days and then they're gone. Jean-Claude said, quote, we do not build messages. We do not build symbols. It's only a work of art. Nothing else. Mm-hmm. Of the giant wrapped structures like the Riksdag and Pont Neuf and the 7,000 gates in Central Park, Kimmelman said, quote, People walk away from these things smiling. It radiates something very positive, and it changes something you see every day of your life, and you see it fresh. Their works aren't necessarily metaphors, and they say time and time again that what they're doing isn't saying anything, but there is meaning to it. Christo says that when people ask him why he makes this art— that he came from somewhere where his art was very restricted and controlled. There was no freedom of expression. Right. But now, living in places like France and America, having the freedom to create art without a reason is the reason right. to create it. Yeah. Which is exactly the quote that that made me that won me over. I yeah. guess because I definitely was looking them up, like, "What is the big idea?" <laughs> Literally. Yeah. And yeah, he was like, "Well, the thing is, is that we used to have to have a reason for everything we did. Yeah. It was for the good of Bulgaria, for the good of communism, because I told you so. Right. <laughs> you don't yeah. have any choice in this." Uh huh. And he was like, "I kind of like the chaos of like, why, why not? Yeah. The, the reason is why not? Reason is nobody told me to, and nobody told me not to, and I'm just going to do whatever it, I want. So I'm doing it. Yeah. That's it. That is that not the most ultimate expression of freedom that I had yeah. no reason to do this. I'm just doing it because I'm a human being in this world and that's my whole thing. In in the most positive way, Christo's work is like distinctly American. Yeah. Right? Totally. Because here's someone who came with basically nothing from an oppressive country, mm-hmm. uh, trying to escape, trying to make a better life for himself and found this world where he wasn't being judged for his accent or his, you know, ability with language or anything like that. And he could do literally anything that popped into his head. He could do it as long as it wasn't bothering anybody else uh, or hurting anybody else. He could just do anything that he dreamed of. Mm-hmm. That's so isn't that's like the ideal. That's what we want to be, you know. Totally. And it must uh, have felt like just busting a, a whole wide open door to the yeah. world. And it's not like. Everybody has that experience in America. No. It's just the it's the ideal image that we're striving for. Yeah. You know? And when asked for advice from young artists, Christo said, quote, Myself and Jean-Claude would never judge other artists. Who are we to judge somebody? Art is an extremely personal thing. It's not a profession. Art is an existence. In art, you live everything. So I cannot give advice. 
the only thing you should do in art is to think and question what it is that you like to do and do it. The biggest problem is to find what you like to do. I love that, too, because that's such a statement on what life is about. Yeah. Which is not to, like, make a bunch of money Uh or leave behind a a exciting legacy whatever, whatever. Or try to convince people of something. Yeah. Or change the world, even. It's right. just like, what do you, where are you happy in this place? Yeah. Where, who are your people? Yeah. Who are you? And you can't know who your people are and what you're happy with until you know who you are a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's really cool. He really just cuts through the pretension, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just like, whatever, we're goofing around, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he never returned to Bulgaria and he never spoke Bulgarian even to his family. But Bulgaria loves Christo. In 1998, he was honored by the Academy of Fine Arts in Sofia, where he studied for two years. But he ended up having the award delivered to him in New York. (laughs) He was like, if I go, they might not let me come back. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it might be part of that. Just like, you know, you don't want to go back to an abusive place where you had a bad time. Mm -hmm. And it's it's so interesting because Bulgaria totally owns him. They're like, Christo, he's a Bulgarian artist. He's from here. He's the best. And he's just never associated himself with (laughs) it, really. (laughs) And yeah, you know, we could go on and on and on about every single piece of work they ever created. Right. There's a lot. But the point here is that they did it all together. They were completely attached. Two sides of the same brain. They shared a vision and a form of expression that was a combination of their experiences and their love for each other. And, you know, they're artists, so they're passionate folks. (laughs) And Jean-Claude said that that did lead to some volatility. Okay, okay. Quote, We are terribly argumentative and scream and criticize each other nonstop. But it's very helpful. It makes us think. Christo is right 75% of the time. (laughs) I love it. She's like, I mean, sure. She's like, I like that she's like, he's the art guy. Like, Uh I'm going to give him a little more credit than me. But he ain't always right. He ain't always right. (laughs) And you kind of you really should go through and look at the works they made over the years because it's some really fascinating stuff. The pictures are just mind blowing, and mm-hmm. I would love to have experienced some of these. I never got to see one in person, but I know. they seem so cool. But sadly, in two thousand nine, Jean Claude suffered a brain aneurysm, and she died shortly after from complications. She was seventy four years old. Mm-hmm. But much like they had said, if there was ever a plane crash, Christo dedicated himself further to their work. His first major project after her death was Floating Piers in Italy, which was something they had conceived together uh, to be able to walk on water. And so this was in 2016. He used nearly two miles of this bright saffron fabric to bridge two small islands to the mainland in Lake Izio in northern Italy. There's a documentary that came out in 2019 about this called Walking on Water. He then dedicated himself to one of the very first projects they'd ever conceived. In 1961, just after their first public work, The Iron Curtain, they had said that one day they would wrap the Arc de Triomphe. Now, nearly 60 years later, the work was ready to be realized. And this would be the first work done in their signature wrapping styles since Jean-Claude's death. As always, the work was self-financed through Christo's sales of his drawings and models. The final cost was about $16.5 million. And compared to their past projects, getting government approval was easy. 
which <laughs> makes sense because they've done so many oh, yeah. projects at this point. I'm right. sure the government was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Great. Sounds great. That's going to bring sure. so many people. Yeah, so absolutely. look at our stuff. <laughs> Let's make a bunch of money off you. Here you go. And that's probably a really good thing because, of course, John claude was the one who had handled all of those types of challenges yeah. in the past. So yeah. it's nice that together they had got their career forward that, you know, he didn't need that as much. I think about that. What what a struggle that must have been for him to not just lose the person that he cared so much about. That was sure. like his literally his other half, mm-hmm. but the person who handled, you know, a good chunk of the difficult work of yeah. putting their projects together. Mm-hmm. And now he suddenly not only just kind of has to overcome his grief to get back to his work, but he also has to find ways to compensate for what she was doing. Yeah. That's so tough. I mean, I think about that with us sometimes. You think about that all the time? Yeah. What what, what would you do? (laughs) Wow. Um, Yeah. What would I do? I would fail miserably. How would you continue the show? I don't know. (laughs) Initially, this project was going to be installed in April of 2020, but it was delayed until September due to kestrel falcons who used the arch as a nesting ground every spring. And, you know, Christo, he really wanted his work to disrupt nature as little as possible. Right. But sadly, on May 31st of 2020, Christo died of natural causes. And that's so heartbreaking to me mm-hmm. because if they had gone with their original plan, he would have seen he it. He would have been alive to see it. Yeah. That's so true. Um, but, uh, but he was trying to be nice to the birds. And well, that's why he missed it. And that's like heartbreaking and sweet and just Christo all over, you know? I know. Yeah. Yeah. But... Christo and Jean-Claude both always wanted their work to continue after their deaths, and Paris announced that the project would continue. Of course, it was delayed once again due to the pandemic, but in September of 2021, Lac de Triomphe wrapped 1961 to 2021 was completed. And for two weeks, the arch was wrapped in 270,000 square feet of blue and silver fabric with 10,000 feet of red rope. There's something really poetic that neither of them got to see this original work yeah. that they had conceived together in in person. They both died before it came out. Yeah. There's something very sad and, and, and kind of beautiful about that. I get that because it's that same like ephemeral nature, right? Mm-hmm. That was the whole point of the work is that it's you, you get it while you get it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they it was the same for them. They got what they got while they got it. And uh, things keep going. Yeah. And things disappear. Yeah. And there's other projects in the works um, of theirs, too. Oh, cool. Uh, there's this one that they have coming called the Mastaba. They had one in London in like 2016 to 2018, somewhere in there. But it's this big like um, trapezoid made out of barrels mm. uh, that was floating on the water. And they're all like orange and purple and blue and red. And it's really bright, colorful, crazy looking thing. And it's based on the shape of an old Mesopotamian bench. Oh. And they have plans to do one in the United Arab Emirates. And they had Ooh. planned on this in 1977. And uh, it's this proposed location in the inland, uh, about 160 kilometers from uh, Abu Dhabi in the desert of Liwa. And this is just another project of theirs that they've always wanted to conceive. And they wanted their art to continue after their death. And there's people just doing it. That's cool. I think that's so cool. So yeah. that, that hasn't happened yet. But uh, according to their website, it's in the works. So yeah. you may yet get to see a Christo and Jean-Claude. I know, right? That's you know, pretty cool. If, if you, you can't get to the United Arab Emirates, maybe there'll be more after that. <laughs> I hope so, because I don't know if we're going to get there. But. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was actually the, Ar- the Arc de Triomphe that made me look them up. Because oh, yeah. I had a friend who was in Paris for this wrapping. Oh, cool. 
And he stayed there for the whole two weeks it was up or however long. I don't right. remember how long it was up. Yeah, it was but, about two weeks. But he was there the whole time and they went to see it every day, multiple times, oh. you know, like, and he was just like over the moon about it. And I just yeah. kept being like, what? But why? I mean, I think it's <laughs> cool. Like, I think it's, I mean, it's a feat to right. wrap a building. But I just, he wasn't ever like getting artistic with it. He was just like, it's amazing. You know what I mean? Yeah. He wasn't really saying why he was finding it so um, incredible. Uh-huh. So I was like, well, let me just look it up. And yeah, again, I was just like, now I get it and I kind of love it. It's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, of course, (laughs) articles across the art world excluded Jean-Claude from their headlines and descriptions of the Arc de Triomphe wrapped, including the Wall Street Journal and the L.A. Times. Come on, guys. Critic Hall Rockefeller writes that even the New York Times obituaries of both artists tend to cast her in the role of his assistant. And they should definitely know better because Christo name-checked them specifically. (laughs) Right. They refer to the gates in Christo's obituary as his project, while in her obituary, they specify that the work was a joint spousal effort, labeling their work as, quote, the art of her and her husband. Wow. So it's like Christo can stand alone, but not Jean-Claude. Right. You can't just say that was her her work that happened on the coasts of Miami Islands. That was Christo. That was actually her husband, and she brought him a nice, tall glass of lemonade. Right. Or that, like, when they're talking about her, they always remember to mention both of them. Uh But when they're talking about him, she's conveniently kind of treated like... Not important. Oh, and she was there, too. So annoying. Yeah. Rockefeller writes that, quote, Artists' wives have acted as studio assistants, advocates, babysitters, and breadwinners. We may never know the full scope of the impact they have made on the history of art. But in the case of Jean-Claude, we do know. Her impact is evident in the covering of one of Paris's most recognizable monuments. It's ironic, however, that despite how large this work looms, she has been diminished. That's crazy. And that's definitely something I think that we've not discovered, but certainly come up against a lot in our research, yeah. is that there's so many great men in history yeah. with, with a lot of accomplishments. And you look at them and you go, but could they have done any of this if not for their wife managing their home and raising right. their oh, children yeah. and yeah. all the other things that they get supported by right. that goes completely un unheralded often giving up what they want to do in favor of their you know Absolutely. their husband's dreams or Absolutely. whatever yeah and and at other times where like i think of um winston and clementine churchill yes. where in fact she was not only doing those jobs so that he could do his but she was actually doing part of his job too sure and we would never have known that so they're like hall rockefeller is basically saying like There's these artists' wives back there that might have been way more engaged in the Mm -hmm. actual artwork, and we just will never know. Yeah. We'll never hear about it because, uh, like you said, as many times as we've researched and been like, here's the entire biographical history of this dude. We don't know much about his wife, but they <laughs> met 40 years later, and here's what happened after that. And <laughs> it's then like she we had just two children. <laughs> uh, that was past a... that part, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's so interesting to see their lives together play out. I feel like it's like a movie almost because mm-hmm. it's weird how it all ties together so neatly. Yeah. Almost like wrap it up with a little bow at the end. <laughs> um, you know, the the like the fabric, for example, that got right. his father in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. We mentioned that. That what. What an interesting role fabric has played in his life from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
how about the haystacks? Obviously, we talked about those being an influence. We're right. seeing these massive public projects of people all coming out with these tarps and covering shit up. And now doesn't it look different? Like mm-hmm. that's that was a huge inspiration for him or the struggles with language and how he couldn't express himself or the fact that they had identical birthdays and met, you know, and basically were in two separate couples, but then they just had to get together. It it almost feels like meticulously planned out like this series of events that led them to show the world like just how silly and ridiculous our rules and standards and our our notions of control are right Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. how much control we need to have over everything and how how many rules we need to have and how everything has to have a reason behind it and they just kind of like we're like are you kidding me just wrap that building in pink plastic and call it a day (laughs) We're here um, to have a good time, yeah. not a long time. I <laughs> like, <don't know. laughs> well, that like we forget we're living in this giant toy box. Right. Right. And that most of us, most people, all we want is fun and joy. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you found something and if you found someone that you can do that thing with, that no matter how ridiculous it is, then do it. Do mm-hmm. it big. Do it insane. Do it the most ridiculous version of that that you can. Yeah. And that's awesome. Yeah, even her background in philosophy, I feel like, yeah. plays in because surely it, when he started talking about what he was doing with his art, uh-huh. she was she had so much language and already this right. knowledge about how to think about things deeply and talk about things in different ways and stuff like that. And just sort of, I'm, I'm sure that's part of what made her inspired in, in thinking of concepts and stuff yeah. as well as yeah. being like, oh, I, you know. Just particularly since she wasn't an artist herself before they met um, and maybe had never thought of becoming an artist. Right. But she saw this great way of expressing some really deep philosophical ideas. Yeah. In in a very non-philosophical way. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. 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 Like without, this kind of meaning again, without meaning. These like they're, they're working in a very pretentious thing without doing it pretentiously. Yeah. Really yeah. making it for the people. Yeah. In a way. Which is so fascinating. And she had that bright red hair. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's this great pictures of the two of them together. I mean, he's got like a Doc Brown look, right? Oh, he's got really? this wild gray hair. Uh, he's tall, skinny guy. And she's just got this fiery red hair and bright red lipstick. It. And they look crazy. They look like so much fun. I wonder if that's why they called her vulgar. Because I was like, what? Where's this oh, vulgar maybe so. coming maybe. from? Maybe he was just like, she's painted up like, well, a, I don't know. She also had that kind of French bluntness. I think in interviews sometimes like she kind of just like said whatever she wanted to say. Mm -hmm. Um, So that might have been part of what they found vulgar (laughs) to a woman saying what she wants to say. I don't think so. Disgusting. (laughs) I I love these guys so much. I'm so glad that we looked into them because it's such a such a different look at art and interpretation Mm -hmm. and meaning and all that. It's it's just kind of let go of of a lot of these notions you have and these pretensions you have about what art should be. Yeah. And again, like you and I both have seen Christo and Jean-Claude works in the past and said, yeah, okay. All right. And then you just, you, you learn a little bit. You're like, oh, damn, actually, yeah. that's pretty neat. Right. And that's all it needs to be is pretty neat. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have to be anything more than that. Right. I mean, there's something awe-inspiring about the scale. Oh, my God. Yes. And the amount of money and the amount of people. Right. And right. so on. But, but. Yeah, it's basically just, I just thought it'd be cool. Yeah. Why not? The gates, um, you can, apparently during the production of the gates, mm-hmm. you could buy little squares of the saffron fabric that they used. Cute. Um, 
And I guess those are still circulating around on eBay, apparently. You get them for like Ooh. 10 bucks or something. So well, that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was cool. It actually reminds me of one of my favorite children's books. I've talked about it before, The Phantom Tollbooth. Yes. There's a great part where he has to have a reason to go to Dictionopolis. Um, He has to have a reason to get in. They're like, it's market day. You have to have a reason. He's like, well, I don't have a reason. And so the guard's like, oh, well, let me see if I have an old one lying around here. And he like goes into a (laughs) chest and he's pulling out all these like things. And he's like, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. Oh, this one's great. And it's just a big metal that says, why not? (laughs) And Milo's like, all right, I'll take it. And I just loved that as a kid because I was like, what a good reason for anything. (laughs) Why why do you need a reason? I love those. Like Phantom Tollbooth was back in that where everybody was just tripping on acid back then (laughs) and like literalizing everything in like the most silly way possible. I'm thinking of like um, the Yellow Submarine movie. Oh, sure. Where he's like, I've got a hole in my pocket. (laughs) Puts that little hole in his pocket. Yeah, it's it's good (laughs) stuff. But yeah, Christo and Jean-Claude are so interesting to me. They're just such bright, lovely, wonderful people. Mm-hmm. Would love to have known them. Yeah. They just seem like a really good time. Totally. Um, and all they all they ever wanted was fun, joy, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. silliness. Yeah. Who doesn't want that? I love that. I hope I hope everyone, including myself, can take some of that energy yeah. away from this episode. Absolutely. And just be like, how can I be making more fun and joy in my life? Yes. What am I not doing that I'm not doing because I haven't thought of a good enough reason yet yeah. to not do it, but right. I still really want to. Just do is it. that not enough of a reason? Yes, it yeah. is. Unless it's like killing someone, in which case don't right. do that. Obviously, <laughs> the line here is if you're hurting other people, then <laughs> don't do it. I know. Their their whole philosophy was do no harm uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> to the environment and also people. Yes. Protect kestrel falcons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but they're awesome. I, I hope yeah. I hope you did um get some if you're not already someone who appreciates abstract art like this. Mm-hmm. I hope that uh, you took something, uh, a new perspective yeah. from it. If you're a super pretentious artist who thinks you're too good for Christo and Jean-Claude, I hope you can open your heart a little bit yeah. um, and show us your work. It sounds cool. Um, <laughs> and, Unless uh, I wouldn't get it. Right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, let us know what you thought. Of course, yeah. uh, reach out. Our email address, romance at iheartmedia.com. Right, or we're on social media, Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Dynamite Boom. And I'm at Oh Great, it's Eli. And the show is at Ridic Romance. That's right. And uh, stay tuned for more episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't wait to bring you some more. Don't forget to check out our episode of Ridiculous History, where right? we guest start with Ben and Noel. And uh, Ridiculous History, also just a great show to listen to. And of course, Ridiculous Crime came out this week. Right. So be sure to be uh, following along with them as well. Definitely. We- otherwise, I think... That's a wrap. Oh, very good. That's a wrap with Christo and Jean-Claude. I'm here all week, (laughs) even if you wish I would leave. (laughs) All right. Thanks, y'all. We'll see you next time. Bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. I'm Katya Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality potency and consistency scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality visit lazarusnaturals.com today lazarus naturals committed to improving your life as well as the world around you not available in idaho iowa or south dakota tired of pickup truck bed chaos meet decked game-changing usa made full bed length drawers for tools and gear waterproof dustproof lockable secure whether you're working hunting fishing camping or just getting out of town and introducing decked deco cases tough modular problem-solving cases built for the truck job site campsite or garage say goodbye to random bins and tie downs order now at deck.com slash iheart for free shipping decked your truck your rules deck.com forward slash iheart What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.